Thank you for leading us in our prayers this morning. So we're going to turn to God's Word now. Uh, Russ is going to come and read for us. So if you've uh, got a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to have it open in front of you. If you haven't brought one with you, there should be plenty in the seats around you. So I'd encourage you to to grab one, have it open, and uh, read along and follow along with us. Um, Today's reading is Psalm 137. Uh, It's on page 631 of the Bibles. It starts out quite well and ends with some quite severe verses. I'm sure Steve will enlighten us on those. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. But how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your children and smashes them against the rocks. This is the word of the Lord. Well, let's just name the elephant in the room, shall we? You don't like that psalm. (laughs) You didn't like that bit about smashing the heads of Babylonian babies on the rocks. And probably don't think this should be in the Bible. I mean, it's cruel, it's vengeful, it's just not Christian, is it? Uh, Didn't Jesus command us to love our enemies? Didn't he tell us to bless those who curse us and not, uh, not, uh, not to per- bless those who persecute us? And those of us who said thanks be to God probably struggled with it. You know, we thought that reading Psalm 88 a few weeks ago was difficult. Well, I imagine this is probably a different level of difficulty for many of us. Am I, am I reading the response relatively well? Well, if I am, it's not because I'm a mind reader, it's because all of those things are in my heart as well. They're things we need to wrestle with together as we look at Psalm 137. So while we always need to pray for God's illumination as we come to his word, I think today there feels like a special need for that. So let's pray. Lord, we believe that the Bible is the book that you wanted us to have and that you don't make mistakes. And so we pray, help us to understand what Psalm 137 is doing in our Bibles and how it can shape both our thinking and our feeling. And we ask this in the name of our miracle-making Messiah, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. And so this morning as we look at Psalm 137... The question that I just want us to consider that kind of undergirds the whole time that we're going to be looking at is, 
Can we as Christians pray Psalm 137? And the question beneath that question is, where do we go when we have those feelings that move beyond grief and mourning to white-hot, clinch-fisted, head-smashing rage? Where do we go with them? Most of us would probably prefer this psalm not to, uh, not to be in our Bibles at all. And if it were, just to finish at verse 6. In fact, uh, a lot of church lectionaries and hymnals do completely remove uh, verses 7 to 9 from uh, the reading. Uh, John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, uh, once said that there are some, some psalms that are unfit for Christian ears. I so strongly suspect that Psalm 137 was one of the ones he was thinking of. And so my question this morning is, was he right? Are there some thoughts, some feelings that cannot or should not be prayed? Well, let's look at it together this morning. Sometimes it's hard to tell the circumstances behind a psalm's uh, being written, Not so with Psalm 137. It's right there for us in the first verse. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept. It's important for us to know that they weren't there on holiday. It wasn't an all-inclusive trip to the Babylonian Riviera. The children of Israel were there because they'd been exiled from their homelands. The Babylonian juggernaut had smashed the city of Jerusalem to smithereens and forcibly deported thousands of its citizens, or at least the ones that they thought would be most useful to them in Babylon. And so this psalm is written by people who have seen their loved ones butchered, their homes torn down, and their temple incinerated before their very eyes before then being taken away to a land hundreds of miles away. Now, I don't say that to excuse the frankly rather sickening thought of verses 7 to 9, not at all. What I just want to try and do, though, is put those verses into their proper perspective. These are the words, these are the words of a people who have lost everything. Of a people who have witnessed it witnessed atrocities that we shudder to name. Of a people whose grief is compounded by their captors jeering. So sometimes at a football match, you might get one lot of fans taunting the other lot of fans, you're not singing anymore. Well, imagine that, but by the army that has destroyed your home, your family, your temple, and taken you hundreds of miles away from home. That's exactly what's going on in verse 3. They're tormentors demanding songs of joy. You can imagine them saying, come on, why don't you sing for us Psalm 48? Zion, the joy of the whole earth. Oh wait, it's a smoking bunch of ruins, isn't it? Come sing us, sing us about how joy ends the joy. You can imagine it. You know, I was... uh, bullied at school from as long as I can remember. And it's often said that sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. It's a load of bull. 
It's just not true. So before we go any further into this psalm, I just want to try, try and encourage you to imagine yourself into their situation, into their shoes. Your home has been destroyed. Your pregnant wife was killed in front of your eyes. In fact, one of the most common practices that not only the Babylonian army, but several armies of the ancient world would do was to rip open the bellies of pregnant women. So you've seen your unborn child and your, your wife butchered before your eyes. You've seen the temple, the special place where you encounter God's presence burn to the ground. And then if that isn't enough, you're then forced to march on foot hundreds of miles to an enemy city where you don't speak the language, where you're going to be slaves for the rest of your life. And your children are going to be slaves for the rest of their lives. And their children are going to be slaves for the rest of their lives. Just put yourself in those shoes. And when you start putting the pieces together in that way, again, not to excuse it, but I actually think Psalm 137 looks pretty restrained. I'm not condoning the sentiments that are expressed. I'm just saying, when I put myself in those shoes, when I try and do that imaginative leap, I could picture myself saying words like verses 7 to 9. In fact, I think I've probably thought far worse about far less. And so what do we do with those feelings? Do we suppress them, pretend that they don't exist? Do we bottle them up and hope that they, just, they don't just burst out at some time, at some unforeseen future uh, event? Well, that's one approach, but Psalm 137 models a different way. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Yeah, rightly, we squirm at the thoughts of these words. And yet, I also just want to draw to your attention what these verses are and what they're not. These words are a prayer. They are words spoken in conversation with God. They're an outpouring of a soul's uncensored rage. They are not, hey everybody, let's go grab some Babylonian babies and butcher them. It's not a call to take up terrorism. They are not even the words of a curse. Notice what it says at the end of verse 8. Happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. So these words are the expression of someone who's longing for justice. There's no hint in the psalm that the, the Hebrews are, are plotting to steal Babylonian children and throw them off the cliffs. 
Rather, what we have here is the cry of a wounded heart asking, eye for an eye. And what the Psalms have shown us as we've looked over them uh, over the last few months again and again is that the way of faith isn't to suppress our feelings, but to process them with God. The Apostle Paul writes to the Christians in Ephesus. He says, in your anger, do not sin. He doesn't say it's a sin to be angry. He says, in your anger, do not sin. I, anger easily leads to sin, something that I'm sure all of us know only too well from personal experience. We're angry and we can lash out at someone uh, physically, emotionally. That's sin. The feeling itself, that isn't sin. It's what we do with our anger that matters. And anger is like a nuclear reaction. It's an incredibly dangerous emotion, isn't it? But prayer is like the reactor that contains and channels that dangerous emotion. And so if we think that uh, being a Christian means never getting angry with anyone or anything, I have to say, frankly, I think we're on cloud cuckoo land. You're going to get angry as a Christian. That's just a given. Being a Christian uh, doesn't mean getting treated like dirt and then pretending, oh, this is wonderful. Thank you so much for hurting me. I'm so glad. What a blessing. Now, there is joy and there is blessing in suffering, but that's not what it means. It's not denying the evil. And so the real question then is this. What are you going to do with your anger when it comes? What are you going to do with it? It is, it is going to come. What are you going to do with it? You see, to say, as some people do, that nice Christians can't get angry and express that anger to God in prayer is to say, well, actually, there are some parts of our lives we can't experience God in. There are some parts of our lives we have to keep separate from God, that we have to put in a little box, shove it out of the way. It's to say that we can't live the whole of our lives in relationship with him. It's to say that even though Jesus became God with us, he didn't become God with us there. Well, it's not true. So if Psalm 137 is read as an incitement to violence, you're not reading it right. That's not what it is. The whole point of the psalm is that the Hebrews are doing something even more dangerous than starting an armed uprising. They're praying. And that really is more dangerous than terrorism. They poured out their hearts to God, telling him what they longed to see happen. And then they leave it up to God to do the results. So the Swiss theologian Karl Barth, arguably the, uh, the greatest theologian of the 20th century, expressed this when he said this. He said, to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. So if you're angry about the way the world is in rebellion against God, get on your knees. That's what Psalm 137 is saying. Get on your knees and pray, your kingdom come, your will be done 
on earth as in heaven. And so do you see uh, the assumption that sits beneath this psalm? It's that our God is a God of justice. The truth that makes Psalm 137 a prayer and not a call to bloody uprising is that God is the judge of all people in all places at all times and he can be trusted to see that justice is done. There will be a day of reckoning for those who oppose his wise and loving rule. There will be a great cosmic writing of every wrong. There will be an undoing of all the evils of the world, a renewal of all things in which all that is wrong with the world will come untrue. If God were ambivalent about justice, then we would have to take matters into our own hands. But he's not. God is passionately concerned about justice. It matters to him. And that's why we can pray and leave it with him. So the Apostle Paul writes to the believers in Rome, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Judgment belongs to God. Not me. That doesn't mean that I don't seek justice, that I don't call out for justice. It means that I don't need to go out and get justice for myself. I don't need to be a vigilante. What liberates Jesus' apprentices to walk the path of nonviolent resistance is the knowledge that God will see that justice is done. It may not be in this life. I have to be honest about that. It may not be in the way that we desire. I have to be honest about that. But God, because God cares even more about justice than I do, or, about, or than you do, justice will be done in eternity. A key part of our praying our anger is taking our case to God and then letting him be the judge. Now, many people don't like the thought of God as judge. They ask, how can uh, a God who is a God of love be at the same time a God of judgment? Are those, aren't those two different things? Well, the assumption is that God's love and God's judgment contradict each other. But that's just a load of rubbish. God's justice and God's love are two sides of the same coin. So uh, the principal of my old theological college, Wycliffe Hall, the best one, as Colin would agree, uh, said that uh, love in the presence of injustice takes the form of anger in the same way that love in the presence of uh, love takes the form of delight. It's God's love that leads him to judge evil. Do you think it would be loving of God never to see evil brought to justice? Is that, would that be loving? Of course it wouldn't. The victims of injustice know that the judgment of God isn't bad news, it's good news. And so the, the presuppositions of a prayer like Psalm 137 is, A, 
God listens to our cries for justice. B, he cares about injustice. And C, he can be trusted to see that justice is done. Whether that's in this life or the next. And it's easier for us on this side of the cross. Because it's at the cross that we see in the words of that great hymn, heaven's peace and perfect justice kissing a guilty world in love. The cross is God's clear, loud, resounding no to human sin. No, I'm not having it. It's not on. It's God's definitive statement that the violation of his loving purposes for us have very real consequences that will not be tolerated. And the scandal, though, is that God himself in his Son, takes the sin of the world into himself. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's scandalous. And so the cross says that no sin is ever merely just brushed under the carpet. God doesn't just brush it under the carpet. No, rather... The cross says, either sin is paid for in Jesus on our behalf, or it's paid by us in hell for all eternity. For us who live on this side of Good Friday, we've witnessed God's reckoning on sin. We know that no matter what evil someone has committed, when they repent and wholeheartedly turn to the Lord, their penalty has been paid in full, and it is no injustice on God's part. And that changes the way we read this psalm. Jesus is torn down in our place. Jesus is doomed to destruction. Jesus is dashed against the rocks of God's cosmic justice. The longing for justice that's expressed in those words that we hate so much finds their fulfillment in Jesus on the cross. So I want to say to you this morning that there is a place for anger in the Christian life. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, uh, a few of us gathered for the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. Uh, And Henrietta Blythe, who's the CEO uh, of Open Doors, told the story of five Christian women in Manipur in India who were stripped naked, paraded through the streets by vigilantes. Then they were gang-raped, two were killed, one was badly beaten, two managed to just about escape. Two were actually handed over to the mob by the police. And I share that not just to highlight the plight of Christians in so many places around the world, but because I think we should be angry about that. And that was one of the things that struck me most as uh, Henrietta Blythe was sharing that story was that you could see it bothered her. In fact, I would even stick my neck out to say 
If your blood doesn't boil at your sisters in Christ being gang-raped and killed, I don't think you're part of the family. It should outrage you that that happens. And Jesus got mad too. And I don't just mean when he overturned the tables of the money changers in the temple. Jesus got mad at death at the graveside of his friend Lazarus. Jesus got mad at sickness when he was met by a leper. Jesus got mad with the religious leaders for their adventures in missing the point when they criticized him for healing on the Sabbath. Jesus got mad with religious leaders for their hypocrisy, being concerned with an appearance of godliness rather than its inner reality. Jesus got mad with his disciples when they prevented the little children from coming to him. Jesus got mad with Peter when he said, don't go to the cross, Lord. There's another way. Jesus got mad. And so I want to tell you this morning that anger does have a place in the Christian life. Jesus' anger is directed against that which contradicts the will of God, whether it's sickness and death or religious hypocrisy or religious formalism. And so that's the great litmus test for our anger. Are we angry because our rights have been stepped on? Or are we angry because we see God's good purposes for the world being trampled on? and contradicted. For all that we find uncomfortable about Psalm 137, it says to the broken-hearted victims of injustice, come on in. Bring with you your mourning at the state of the world as it is. Let God have your rage. Let him have your anger. Scream with us. Psalm 137 says, turn your rage into prayer. And so we begin to circle back to that question at the beginning. Can a Christian pray Psalm 137? Can anger have a legitimate place in the life of a faithful follower of Jesus? And my answer is, yes, but... Yes, because we can pray any time, any place, any prayer. Yes, because God wants us to live in relationship with him through the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yes, because God wants us to know that anger in itself isn't necessarily bad. But it means recognizing that prayer is the best safety valve for our anger. But it means entrusting God with our complaint rather than taking matters into our own hands. But it means seeing all human evil, including our own, absorbed here on the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus knows how to be indignant, irate, even furious, but without the slightest trace of derision, contempt, or abuse. We don't. And so the safest place we can take our anger is to God in prayer. What's more, we also have to take our anger to God in prayer as those who are forgiven sinners ourselves. 
As we pray our pain against those who have wronged us, we don't deny the wrong that they've done, but we also see our wrongs born in the body of Jesus on the cross. We also know that we deserve God's judgment on sin. And on this side of the cross, our prayers for God's justice become prayers that our enemies are brought to the same repentance and faith that we've been brought to. So a Christian can't pray Psalm 137 or something like it without knowing that cosmic justice has already been served at the cross. Christian calls for divine justice just look different. Now, I, I can imagine uh, right back in the early, sta- early chapters of the book of Acts, uh, Christians praying uh, of Saul of, uh, as he was persecuting the early church. I can imagine them praying, Lord, get him! Do something about him. And of course, the glorious thing is he does but he doesn't get him in the way that they might have imagined. The Lord gets him by making him a brother in a way that made the chief of sinners, in his own words, a part of the family. And so as believers, we simply cannot pray our rage in any other way than remembering that Jesus takes our longing for divine justice into himself. Jesus becomes Babylon. Just let that sink in. Jesus becomes Babylon. And this, I think, leads us to ask the rather difficult but searching question. Is there anyone who might want to pray something like verses 7 to 9? about me. Could there be people who are asking God to repay me for what I have done to them? On the mouths of Christians, Psalm 137 should lead us to sober reflection and godly sorrow for our own sins. While we might not have dashed any Babylonian infants on the rocks, we've all thought and said and done things that have had profoundly bad impacts on other people. And I don't mean those impacts, those things where it's kind of hurt feelings, but it's kind of unpleasant, but ultimately for their good. I mean, when you've just been vicious or unthinking. This psalm holds up a mirror before us and says, this is, what psalm do- uh, this is what sin does. This is what your sin does to other people. And so perhaps today the Lord is ca- calling some of us here to repent. So I think we can pray Psalm 137 but the praying of it is transformed in Christ. I think it's important for us to see that The only curse in this psalm is not actually against the Babylonians. It's against oneself. 
verses 4 and 5. If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem above my highest joy. Do you know what those words mean? Those words mean, woe is me if I settle down here in Babylon. Woe is me if I make my peace in the world as it is, in all its brokenness and sin and rebellion against God. Woe is me if I learn some good Babylonian tunes, eat some good Babylonian food, marry my children off to some Babylonian partners, accept the Babylonian ways. Woe is me if I forget that I'm in exile here and that this is not home. And so I want to finish by asking the question, have we forgotten Jerusalem? Have we forgotten the vision of the new Jerusalem towards which we're moving, a place of perfect union between God and humanity, where what God wants done is done not 60% of the time, but 100% of the time? Have we made ourselves too comfortable in the world as it is, a world that is passing away? Have we settled for the United Kingdom instead of the kingdom of God? Have we lost sight of the fact that our citizenship is in heaven, not here? Have we made Babylon's ways our ways? Have we stopped looking and longing and yearning for the life of the world to come? Have we taken our eyes off the heavenly city and focused on the earthly city? Have we exchanged real inner godliness and holiness for something superficial? Have we given up on the Great Commission? Have we made exile home? Jerusalem for the Old Testament people of God symbolized the meeting place of heaven and earth. And the book of Revelation depicts the new Jerusalem like this. It says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things have passed away. Saints, have you forgotten that vision and exchanged it for a bowl of this world's you-do-you pottage? I want to put it to you that we're not nearly angry enough as we should be as the people of God. Now, there's a lot more that should outrage us in the world that just doesn't. And perhaps the reason our prayers aren't angrier, angrier is because we've become too comfortable here with the status quo. After all, it actually works pretty well for a lot of us. But God's vision of the kingdom remains. So let me just finish by asking, what are you angry about? What do you see in the world that contradicts God's good purposes for the world? And not what we think contradicts them, but what he says contradict them. What we see in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. What we see in the pages of the Bible. And then I just want to encourage you, get angry about it. 
Let it outrage you. And then to use the words of Karl Barth that I mentioned earlier, clasp your hands in prayer and begin an uprising against the disorder of the world. So let me just say, here are some of the things that I'm angry about at the moment. I'm angry that while there are many people who would like to take these verses out of Psalm 137, or just 137 out of our Bibles at all, where's the same anger at the 214,256 babies being killed through abortions in the year 2021 in the UK alone? Where's our anger at the church being, I believe, led to compromise biblical truth in order to appeal and accommodate to the world? Where's our anger that our sisters in Christ are being raped and killed for their faith in places like Manipur? And you know what would, I really hope it's not true, but what would really... What would really tick me off as well is that after all this, there'll be more grumbling about what I've done this morning than any of that. But Psalm 137 teaches me to take my anger to God in prayer. And it teaches you to do the same thing. So if we forget what the church is called to be, may we lose the ability to strum our guitars and play our pianos. May our tongues be forever tied and unable to sing if we forget the new Jerusalem and if we do not seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness. Amen. So there's a, there's, a lot, there's a lot in here, and so I, I just think it's appropriate for us just to take some time in, in quiet, just to reflect on what the Lord is saying to us here and now this morning.